HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. My name is Chloe Sorvino. I head up all food, drink, and agriculture coverage at Forbes. Um, I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation today. On the end, we have Chad Hardesty of Hardesty Cedars. Then we have Megan Bell of Margins Wine. Then Cole Thomas of Madison Wines. And Alex Pomerantz of Subject to Change. We're going to be talking about the economics of being a young winemaker today and all the challenges that go along with that. Um, But to start, I want to open it up and say, you know, what really brought you to the natural winemaking movement? And can you can you tell your stories? Uh, Sure, I'll start. Um, I got into natural wine through uh, getting into wine and then sort of I think it's like the place where a lot of people end. And once you're there, you can't really go back. Um, so yeah, I just got into it through drinking it at some shops and um, was making wine at another wine company and sort of pivoted out of that and opened uh, Subject to Change Up um, to sort of explore what I was most passionate about, which is natural wine. Hi everyone, my name is Cole Thomas. I have Madsen Wines. Uh, we're based in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, I got into wine because I was um, actually managing a seed library at UCSC in Santa Cruz. And we hosted an event um, at Santa Cruz Mountain Vineyard. um, And I met the winemaker. And he had the coolest story. He was the coolest guy I'd ever met. And then I pretty much just bothered him until he gave me a job. Worked for him for about five years, bouncing back and forth between um, New Zealand, Australia, making wine down the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, slowly, kind of, you know, through tasting wine, um, traveling, learning about how great wine can be without all those additives, you know, like you can make great wine without, you know, yeast that's grown in a laboratory. <laughs> and, uh, and so just kind of, uh, 
the owner of that winery would not let me do that with his wines. And so I was like, well, all right, I'm going to do it for myself. And so, yeah, here I am today, three years later. So, uh, I studied wine chemistry at UC Davis right out of high school. And that definitely wasn't like a natural program. But I was lucky to be there at the same time as a bunch of other producers in California who are making natural wine, who are between five and 10 years older than me at the time, who really introduced me to things. Um, and after my first internship after college, which was at uh, kind of a horrible Napa winery, um, <laughs> I knew that I was never going to work in that type of wine production again, and I haven't. Hi, I'm Chad Hardesty. Um, I got into natural wine kind of <clears throat> on accident. I had a, uh, a girlfriend whose father made natural wine in his backyard kind of an old hippie, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, and uh, I made wine with him for a couple of years, and he says, okay, I can't do much for you anymore. I'm going to hand you over to my good friend, Tony Katuri, and Kona, Tony Katuri is kind of the, considered the godfather of California natural wine. Um, I kind of mentored under Tony for a little bit. Uh, at the same time, I was, I was leasing land on a uh, vineyard to grow organic vegetables. That's what I wanted to do in my hippie life. I was going to be a vegetable farmer and make wine in my backyard. Uh, the owner says, hey, you're not making any money on these, uh, selling these vegetables. Why don't you manage the vineyard for me? I'll give you, I'll pay you in grapes and I'll let you use the winery. So that's kind of how that happened. So now I'm stuck. <laughs> I got too much money into it. You guys all have different stories, which is why I think this panel will have such a breadth of perspective. Um, since we're focusing on the economics of natural winemaking, I want to start off with a more slightly controversial topic. You know, the idea of becoming financially successful as a winemaker is kind of shunned from this movement in a lot of ways. The movement romanticizes the struggle of the artisanal producer, while at the same time everyone else is kind of making money, the, the wine shops, the restaurants, the distributors. Um, and at the same time, a lot of the credit is, is, is to them. But um, when a producer make, make it and get hyped, there are some Snickers um, that they sold out. So I want to talk about this tension and what has your experience really been around this? And, and what does financial success really look like to you? Uh, sure. I guess I'll start again. <laughs> um, yeah, this is something that I think about and talk about a lot. And it's... Um, it's kind of like a, a weird piece of the industry because I do definitely feel like um, sort of like the artist struggle is kind of like this fetishized part of what people dig about natural wine and like what helps like, you know, kind of romanticize the whole thing for people. Um, but yeah, the reality is like financially, uh, the economics of a small wine business particularly in California, they're, they're vastly different than in Europe because um, just the cost of doing business is very high, the cost of land is very high, the cost of labor is very high, and, um, well, none of us at least, and most people, don't come from winemaking families that have, like, passed down, you know, centuries of knowledge and land and stuff like that. So you got to start from square one, you got to have some capital, and kind of how you deploy that is obviously up to you, but um, there is a, this like notion that, you know, people who start to like make money or show success are kind of like selling out, 
and I, I just don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think that there's uh, opportunity and plenty of space for plenty of great producers to both run good and successful businesses while retaining like this sort of creative artist control the same way that successful chefs do, the same way that successful movie writers and directors and producers do, um, the same way that anybody who's successful in a creative industry is entitled to becoming successful um, if you're good at it. And um, yeah, running the business is much harder than making the wine. Um, I, I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but I, I certainly think that it is. It's the, it's the linchpin to, to everything because you can't do it without money and you can't run a business without money, obviously. Um, but there's like, yeah, there is this, I'm kind of rambling, but I do feel like there is this like notion that once you're successful, your wines are no longer like hip and cool, which is stupid. Uh, I also talk about this constantly Um, I think it's so important that we're honest about our financial situation in this line of work because wine does have such a aura of ritziness to it or at least money even in a movement like this where we're kind of on the leftist side of things and we're trying to be radical etc but you know, people who can afford wine have money, and for the most part. And I think that the people who are affording that wine and buying it should want the people making the wine to be able to afford to live. Um, so my situation is that I pay myself $300 a month for my company. I support myself with a bunch of other jobs, from babysitting and dog sitting and house sitting and tutoring to working in a restaurant as like a busser. Um, I did have a full-time job in wine production up till two years ago, but this company, my company was growing and I couldn't work full-time anymore and keep doing things in that space. Um, And I don't have investors and I don't have loans because a normal bank isn't gonna give someone like us a loan. Agriculture, our type of agriculture, winemaking, even an ag bank doesn't, we're not a good candidate for them because of our cash flow situation, which is almost non-existent. <laughs> um, and, and you've been doing it amazingly well, right? I mean, and, we'll, and we'll get there, but I think this is just really important to, to set this up, right? I mean, you've been really focusing on your business, getting direct consumer, getting as, as much margin as you can possibly can. And, Ironically, you know, your label's called Margins Wine. Um, but, you know, it's... Yeah, but I just think that if, like, it's up to us in some capacity to share our story, and if, you know, more people knew our situation, like, not being able to afford food for some of us, including, you know, me, um, and being on government assistance in that way, like, is that what we want the creators of this product that's radical, that we love, do we want them to be in that situation? And does that mean paying more for the wines and buying them directly from the producer sometimes? Then maybe that can make all the difference in their life. Cool. Yeah, for, for me, um I'm, I'm the same way. I have a, a day job as well. Uh, I manage 30 acres 
uh, vines uh, in Coralitos, California, south of Santa Cruz, um, for a distillery. And so that kind of has like paid the bills, you know, gave me a place to live, stuff like that. So I'm working like a full-time job doing that and then full-time job making wine as well. It's like, it, it's, it, it's incessant, it's endless. It's like all, you know, but you know, the hope is one day that you know, the, the brand becomes known and, and is successful and you, know, you can be comfortable at some point in the, in the future. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work just to make it work for me. Um, you know, instead of paying people to go in the vineyard and do the farming, I, I do some of the farming myself. And that is like, all right, going on like 12 hours <laughs> again today. And it's like winter time, you know? So even after the harvest, you know, at one point when I was working for other people, it was like, oh, harvest is over. I'm going on vacation. Um, now it's like, oh, harvest is over. Like, keep working. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, but... I, I tell people that we have, uh, three, especially if we're growing grapes, we have three jobs. First, we've got to grow the fruit, then we have to make the wine, and then we have to sell it. And for me, the hardest part is selling it. Um, and I, I've built a brand over the past 10 years, and now the challenge is, is keeping that brand alive, uh, finding the money to buy bottles. I think we all talked about this. You know, maybe I want to get my wine into bottle after nine months, but I've got to wait. 15 months so I can, before I can afford to buy glass and corks and labels. So that's, kind of, that's, that's challenging. And, you know, uh, maxed out credit cards, you know, I've asked banks, been turned down. Uh, but at the same time, the last thing I want to do is owe more people more money. That's kind of why I've shied away from trying to find investors. I've taken, you know, taken, borrowed money from friends, vintage doesn't turn out, can't pay them back, you know, and there goes a friendship. Um, so these are these are definite uh, challenges. I also have uh, day jobs, um, which help to pay for for this business. But I also have a young family that I have to support. And right now, my wife is riding my ass, so that's why I'm doing subways and buses instead of Ubers this year. So you know, that's just uh, you know keeping it alive and trying to find the money. And then we, we also we want to be successful to a point. Um, of course, a lot, you know, money coming down like rain would be wonderful, but I think just to have a sustainable, viable business to where you can pay yourself a living wage and then the business sustains itself. There's always going to be ups and downs when you're, you know, a, a, a small business, but just to get to the point of where, okay, this thing is kind of a well-oiled machine, when is that going to happen? You know, I, yeah, so. I, yeah, I guess, um, I think it would be important to understand that there's like a lot of different business models up here and uh, none of them is right. <laughs> you know, like there's no right and wrong. The economics um, don't work for pretty much any of them. Yeah, so like we like we, we have taken on investors. Um, we, we sort of have like a, a different approach, which is like we've tried to make, we've tried to grow our volume quickly to the point where we look at the numbers and they make sense, they start to make sense. Um, so we sort of know like what that volume threshold is for us. And um, the most challenging thing is, is cash flow because of the inherent nature of the business. Like your, all of your costs are sunk for so long into product before you can actually even bring it to market. And then 
pay for all of the things that come with selling it and then hopefully get it all sold, which is which are all pretty big challenges, right? So like in the best case scenario, like turn and burn wines that don't see like long time in barrel, um, you've sunk in your farming costs or your labor or you've purchased the fruit. So that cash is gone. The wine's in barrel, let's say until like February. So we're talking about like starting sinking costs in maybe like the winter when you prune mm -hmm. and then, or the spring when you prune, whatever. Um, and then, so that's sunk and then you're, that's all your farming, all your fruit. And then you've got like your time and your labor for crushing it and your rent for your winery and any other like CapEx type purchases like equipment that you need. And then you've got um, time and barrel and then let's say like the next February at the earliest, generally speaking, you need to buy packaging and then you get it to market, let's say like two months later, if you're really like slamming and then you've got your cash tied up for a year before the first bottle is in the market and then you might be on like a year long sales cycle from there. So like best case scenario, you're probably looking at like 12 to 24 months before you're like liquid on that wine again and in that time you've already had to start the next vintage and so and you probably want to grow your production if you're starting and like the three of us are in our first few vintages so we're constantly reinvesting and I'm sure you are in other ways although your business is more mature um, so yeah it's uh, and like the upside like the success I think it's like if you can really make it you're probably talking about you know, pulling down like like very very successful a a very moderate salary relative to other industries. And like what, like single digit margins or? Like I think, you know, ten years from now, if if my business is very successful, like I could make six figures, but it's not like a. You know, it's not like I'm. It's no one's no one's becoming a millionaire off of this line of work. Right, but, but financial success can mean a lot of different things, right? I mean, I, Meg, I was at your winery in June, and one of the things I was so sh struck by was you, you were saying that you just want to be able to afford organic produce, right? You just want to be able to like live by the practices that you're preaching through what you're making. Um, and, and that was very powerful to me. Um, and so, so as we're... Um, Moving on, I want to talk about each model and what, what actually is working and, and what has been you know, challenging um, in terms of as, as you scale, as, you, as you're trying to expand into new states, into more distribution. Um, who has had direct-to-consumer work for them and, and what have been some of the pitfalls? Meg, do you want to start? I know you've, you've yeah, done a I'll lot start. here. Um, so at the beginning, because no one knew me and I was 25 when I started. I didn't have like a mentor or any, I wasn't connected to a famous person in the wine industry the way that so many young people are lucky to be that kind of float them at the beginning. Um, so I started with a Kickstarter um, and I, my goal was like $10,000. So anyone who started a business or has money knows that that's like nothing. Um, so 
it was a modest beginning in that way, but I had this list of 75 people who had donated who were like my original mailing list. And you can't give wine as a prize over Kickstarter, so they didn't get any wine, but <laughs> they were on the mailing list and they started buying wine, most of them. And even now my direct to consumer is, um, well, at the beginning, overwhelmingly people who are friends and family. And then in the last year, I realized that if I wanted to be like financially viable ever, I would need to be a lot more direct to consumer. So I started advertising on a local podcast. I'm also from Santa Cruz. Um, and that is not a wine-related podcast, but they, the podcast grew a lot as I was growing, so I was able to just pay in wine instead of advertising money, because obviously we don't have that kind of budget. Um, and it, when I started working with them, they had like 800 followers, and now they have over 20,000. So those people signing up for my mailing list being promoted over and over every week has been huge for me. And now about 40% of the people that buy from me are from this podcast. And I think the lesson there, right, is like be creative, be scrappy, and take bets on, on things that you might not work out, but clearly it did, and um, incredibly so. Ch Chad, I know you uh, have a different opinion of direct-to-consumer. Well, it, it would be nice to sell everything direct-to-consumer because you're getting top dollar. Even if you discount your wine 10 15%, you're still making a, a real good margin. Um, the problem is where I'm at, uh, Humboldt County, California, or, or the whole county has a population of 100,000 people in the whole county. So it's really tough to sell locally and to sell directly to consumer. I had some... Uh, traffic through a website thinking I'd sell all my wines through the website, but it was maybe one person, you know, every two months, you know, looking for wine. And it got to the point where I would put that on the back burner. I wouldn't send wine out, and it ended up being that was a whole other headache. Um, and I think we talked about it on the phone. When you get into that and you, you almost need a dedicated salesperson to deal with that because you're too busy dealing with all the other stuff. Um, so economically, yeah, I mean, it would be wonderful, but I, I've pretty much given up on the direct-to-consumer at this point. It's easier for me to send, you know, a pallet or two here, send a pallet to L.A., you know, a pallet's 56 cases. Sure, I don't get the money, but I get that cash flow that comes in right away, and then I can then go buy glass and labels and corks and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's difficult, difficult, uh, you know, marketing Right, I mean, you have to be, right, the, the grape sourcer, the winemaker, the CEO, the accountant. It's a lot of roles for one job. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can only imagine what that, that's like. And obviously, you know, all the cash flow coming out and coming back in, it, it's a lot of risk to put on the table. Mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, I mean, like, like anything else, it just requires a budget for it. And so you just kind of have to figure out, like, like Megan's alternative approach is, like, very scrappy and awesome and like I love it and I've never heard of that before but like even that requires a budget because she's lucky enough to be able to trade them in wine which is cheaper for her than cash but it's like and that's like a pretty sweet deal but you know if you really want to do it you have to sink resources into it just like everything else and so you're just constantly deciding how to allocate resources and if you want to allocate resources towards DTC and like blow it up um you have to like sink some dollars into professional marketing and 
professional publicity and um, yeah, you also have to spend a ton of time dealing with the back end of that, which means like shipping logistics, compliance of shipping, um, just packing the wines up physically takes a long time. So that's either you or somebody that you're paying, which is just money that you have to allocate to it. So um, like I used to work for a company and we opened up a tasting room in um, a small town in Sonoma Valley and that, you know, it, it, it was like a break-even proposition by the time we staffed it and paid rent and all that stuff. Um, so it was great and it, it probably is still great for them and it's probably growing, but it's just like, it's such a long game. I guess if I could say one thing, it's just like, it's such a long game. It's like you, you, you struggle for a long time, then you hopefully, you like catch a break and you start building momentum and you reach a point where you sort of hit like, what I hope is gonna be like financial equilibrium. And so that's like, that to me is like, that's gonna be success when like paying bills isn't done by maxing out another credit card. That's like the, that's like the, the goal right now. That's to get back to like equilibrium. And then you kind of, you know, you invest dollars in things that pay off like a long time down the road. And so the question is just, how do you keep it afloat in the interim? I don't know. <laughs> so what's the worst business mistake you've ever made? Obviously, you've been, you're passionate about winemaking, but you've also had to, you know, be the accountant, be the financial projector, be the strategist. And I, I ask this because I think a lot of people listening to this will, are producers themselves and will want to learn from your mistakes. I'm not starting. Starting, starting a winery? No. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, uh, for me, uh, a, a big detrimental, I had a bad vintage 2014. I sunk a lot of capital into uh, fruit, the grapes, that it was just a bad vintage. It did not turn out the whole 2014. I think I made 600 cases, and I can't sell one bottle of it. And that's because I brought in fruit that was subprime, um, ended up having too much VA, and the wine basically turned to vinegar. I don't use sulfites. I don't do anything like that. Uh, it was great when I bottled it, sold a few cases, and then I got some calls. And I go and try the wine, and I'm like, oh, shit. Well, I guess I can't sell this. So there goes. Then it took me two years then to come back from that. So this is, these are just things that, you know, I chose this path, so I have nobody to blame but myself. Yeah, but to your point, right, I mean, grapes are super expensive, super hard to source. There's a lack of supply of the quality grapes, of especially organic, that, that I'm sure you want. Meg, you source from underutilized grapes. I'm sure it's hard, and I know everyone can probably speak to that, right? Are you, are you going? Are you what, ready? One of, <laughs> one, of, one of the biggest mistakes I made was actually uh, this year. I took on a new vineyard. Um, most of the vineyards, so how I have sourced my grapes is I actually farm the vineyards for the landowners. And, uh, and then that then subsidizes the, the grape prices. So that's worked great in the Santa Cruz Mountains with the local uh, vineyards. But uh, I, I met a woman that had a vineyard in Carmel Valley. And it's an amazing vineyard, super high elevation on calcareous sandstone. I was like, this is amazing, Syrah, I want to make this. 
And so I told her, I should never have told her, that I could farm the vineyard for her and, and like make a, a decent wine from it. And I just didn't allocate enough time to that vineyard because it was a two hour drive. And uh, it ended up, we didn't net the vineyard and uh, because it's a lot of work and a lot of time to net a vineyard. And uh, the birds ate everything. And so I put a bunch of time and a bunch of money into the vineyard and ended up with a very, very little crop. So it's things like that. I mean, um, there's a ton of risk in the industry too. And the farther you go back, um, you know, as far as production wise, like if you are in the vineyard as well, you just assume more risk and you, you really don't know what you're gonna get every year. And you hope that when it's in barrel, it, it becomes something pretty and something that people will enjoy. But um, yeah, you really have no idea, so. Um. I narrowly dodged my biggest mistake, which was uh, my first vintage someone, well, backtrack. So as, I'm just gonna do this, one, I'm only gonna say it once. As a woman in the wine industry, I have always, I think as a woman in general, uh, trained to think that I know less than other people and listen to other people, specifically men, that talk with confidence, if not experience. And this happened. Um, someone told me who is in the buying side of wine that, oh yeah, you, why'd you only do 40 cases on Sulford? You should do your entire production on Sulford. And I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm ready to take that risk. Like I'm. 25 and no one knows who I am and I don't know if someone's gonna wanna buy this wine. Like, I don't know this vineyard. It's my first time doing this. Like, what if something goes wrong? Like, not like I'm adding tons of sulfur, but at least it's like, you know, just in case something goes wrong. And I thought about doing that and then I ended up not doing it. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of for choosing like what I wanted. And the wine that I sulfured that year, it was a white wine, was way easier to sell right away. Turned out the unsulfured wine was way better later, um, but I didn't know that yet because I didn't have experience with that vineyard. So I think not um, believing in your own experience and what you've learned from that experience instead of letting other people who are just speaking with confidence, um, convince you that you're not like right or worthy. Um, I'm going to give like a slightly more existential and less individually practical answer, which is I think the biggest mistake that I've made, which is widely applicable to almost anything in life, is rushing into things and making decisions because you think you have to before you're ready to. Um, and this, is, this sounds like way more kind of like heady than it really is, but this is applied to me with um, my business partnerships. This is applied to me with other relationship, other business relationships. And um, it's cost my business and my my well-being a lot of uh, hardship 
And so this applies to a lot of things throughout the whole like ecosystem of a winery. So this is, you know, jumping into a vineyard because you're really excited about it, jumping into a business relationship because you're really excited about it, signing on with a distributor because you're really excited about it before you've vetted or really felt comfortable about it. And I think a lot of that comes from being young. A lot of that comes from not having decades of business experience. Um, and some of it, and a lot of it is driven by just like passion and excitement. And you're just like, you want to go and you want to get out there and you want to like show what you've got. And then you realize that you would have probably been better served maybe being a little more patient. Um, so yeah. Honestly, that's what I hear from the startup CEOs to the billionaires I speak to. So uh, that's a great lesson. Let's talk about financing. Um, everyone here has had a different experience with it. Obviously, historically, it's been hard to get private in investors or institutional investors like banks, small business loans for this kind of product. Um, what has your experience been? And, and obviously, t tell us what you would be using capital for. Obviously, it could build out a winery. It could ex help you expand to new states. It could help you buy land to build your own winery so you can source your grapes directly, which would save margin as well. And, 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 and where do you want to see the financing potentially go? So um, sink, investing money into things that can save you margin is, a, is part of the long game. Um, which is an approach that, like, you're constantly deciding about whether you're in the moment, in a decision, you need to, like, err on the side of the long game or err on the side of the short game. And so investing money into things like like infrastructure, CapEx type things, like... And you have investors, right? Yeah, so we do have investors, so... How'd um, you find them? They are friends, <laughs> um, which I'm very fortunate to have those friends. I'm very fortunate that they believed in me enough to part with a very substantial amount of money to get our project off the ground. And we used almost all of that money um, on a very long-term approach, which was sinking almost the very, very vast majority of our seed capital into capex type expenses and not saving enough for operating capital um so we spent a lot of money on like equipment and infrastructure which is great because we spend so much less money on like what would otherwise basically be custom crush fees so we have our own gear so that we can do things ourselves and make our own wines which also vastly improves wine quality i think because we can like do our own thing um, but and we're not paying like price per ton on everything that we crush, but um, it has led to significant cash flow issues. And so, um, as far as where the money comes from, institutional lenders are not an option. We've all discussed that. We've all sort of barked up that tree, and it just isn't going to happen. The only way to get an institutional lender to back a business like this is if you're already independently wealthy or have somebody that's independently wealthy that's going to provide collateral for the loan, which is the same thing as basically getting money from that person or having money. So unfortunately, that's not an option. So um, yeah, the friends and family route, I think, is the only way that 
wineries get off the ground without starting with tons of money from another business. And there's like kind of this old adage, like how do you make a small fortune in the wine industry? You start with a large fortune. Um, and uh, <laughs> right. I, I mean, would have loved a, to have started These aren't like the Napa wineries that like, the, the, you know, the historic banker cliches have always been investing in, right? And honestly, I'm excited to see like where, when our generation gets a certain amount of wealth, like what happens in terms of the angel investing scene with natural wine. But um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, who else is looking to raise or who else could use the capital and what would you be doing with it? I contacted a couple of different institutions for money um, this last year because I, I outgrew the custom crush facility that I was working in. Um, the, the winemaker was like, yep, you're at 40 barrels, you got to go find a new home. So I, uh, I built out a small barn um, and I contacted, most of the institutions were like, yep, nope, there's no way, you, you, we can't. For this return, we can't. And is it because of the where you're growing wine, and it's not just being a historical wine growing region or wine making region? Um, it's just being in business. I haven't been in business that long. I've only been selling wine since 2018. 2016 was our first vintage producing wine, but then you have to wait, you know, a year or two until until you can actually sell it. So, um, so I hadn't been in business long enough to get like financial institution money, and then I went to like a brewery finance institution, they're like, yeah, we can loan you money at like 25, 30%. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Um, <laughs> right. but, uh, and that's exactly the point though, right? I mean, like when you're really struggling to find a deal, the yeah. deals you might get are not worth it or maybe terrible for you. You're a founder. You want, you've been working so hard to be building this winery and building this brand that why then give it up for some 30% interest rate? Yeah, and the, mo the money's got to get you to the next step. Like, it can't just keep you in business for another year. It's got to be like, in my opinion, it's got to be growth to get to a place of profitability, in, in, you know, or at least to then go out and look for investors who will then take on a percentage of the business, but at least the business is valued higher at that time. And to take certain risk off the table, right? I mean, just in terms of how much purchasing you're selling out, you're, you're, you're selling, or you have to put out the door to buy the grapes, right? And, 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 and there's yeah. a certain risk involved with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I still receive letters from different uh, money lending institutions all the time addressed to margin swine. <laughs> it's a typo. <laughs> margin you're not swine. a pig business. <laughs> um, but like Cole said, they're not uh, good options. So I, I'm at the very beginning of starting to look for investors. I just realized that this last year when it wasn't gonna happen with a bank and I've had one person approach me um, who wanted to like actually give me money, which was amazing because I've just been talking about it all the time and thinking, who are you supposed to ask? And like. How weird, and your family's already helped you so much, and especially if you've done a Kickstarter, you don't really wanna ask them for more. And I was really lucky this last summer, I needed a few dozen thousand dollars immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, someone told someone else, and that person donated me the money. Um, which is the kind of thing, like Alex said, that makes you be like, wow, someone believes in me. Like, this makes me want to keep going. Like, I can't disappoint this person who gave me this gift. Um, 
but our money disappears like that, and that's that's not a lot of money. And you know, we need four or five or twenty times that to be able to be where we are. So, what I would do with that money, what I'm planning on doing, is being able to branch out into my own space, warehouse rent in our area. Santa Cruz is insanely expensive. Cost of living there is a lot. Um, being able to buy my own equipment. Right now, I don't own anything but barrels. Um, and then I share equipment in a shared facility, which is how I've made it work. But I'm getting to the point. I also make 40 barrels, which is a 1,000 cases, that you kind of need your own space once you're above that. And before uh, we go to Chad, uh, can you explain a little bit more about how that like shared services model and your your shared winery model works? Because I think that's a fascinating concept, and I, and it's definitely it's kind of like an, an incubator in a lot of ways, or an accelerator in in the startup world. Yeah. So at the beginning, the way that I was able to do what I was doing was the first two vintages. I made my wine with a job that I worked full-time at a winery, and I didn't have to pay for it at all. I just, I wasn't paid very much, 25 bucks an hour, which is great for the wine industry, sadly. Um, and then most of my pay came from getting to use their equipment in space. Uh, then when I moved into the facility I am now, I was able to afford it by work trading most of it. I paid a very small amount per month, not based on production, but flat fee but needed to be available basically all the time to help farm vineyards for someone else, um, you know, which was very costly in time, and I wasn't getting paid, but I didn't have to pay thousands a month to, um, to have space in a facility, but then I didn't have any money for like my own life, like rent and stuff. <laughs> uh, but without that arrangement, what I do now like wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I was fortunate to have a space where I traded labor for the use of the equipment in the winery. And this is the first year that I'm actually being charged rent because there's a new owner. And I'm already looking at ways to get out. Um, that was the only real way that I was able to get off the ground. Um, the equipment is ridiculously expensive. Uh, you can find barrels relatively inexpensive that are used, um, but there comes risk with that. Uh, barrels could be infected with something. You know, you don't know what. Um, you know, to buy stainless steel tanks, stainless steel is is a fortune. Press wine presses, even just a simple basket press. You know, if you can find used, you're talking. You know. Five, six, seven thousand dollars, ten thousand um, dollars. So all these things add up, and then throw rent on top of that. And people are wanting rent, like you know, what I have to pay. For, I also have to pay to live somewhere. Now I've got to pay the same amount of money to rent space. Um, so yeah, it's it's challenging. I, I was fortunate to have other businesses, but I've kind of driven those businesses into the ground, taking money from them to keep this going. So. Um, it's definitely, you know, winemaking and farming. My grandfather grew up farming, and he says farming is gambling, and that's pretty much all it is. You're, you're gambling from year to year. There's another thing that's guaranteed. Um, so that's also hard to, when you go and ask investors. A lot of people, you know, don't want to lend you money on something that isn't a sure thing. So... Um. 
man, yeah, this is a huge topic, so uh, I'll try to be like somewhat concise, but I feel you trying to steer the no, conversation you're good. You're towards good. like. I'm just gonna I'm gonna break for a question. If there's any questions to answer, let's start thinking about your questions, guys. After this, after this comment. Okay, so like you've touched on a few things, like talking about angel investors becoming interested in this space, um, and so like to sort of bring it towards like what does um, like private money investing look like? Mm -hmm. um, it's so challenging to create a business model that is investable for this kind of um, for this kind of business. So in order to do that, again, like you have to you have to get somebody who's in for the long long game with you. You have to get somebody who you're um, like philosophically aligned with, and you have to ideally get people that either love you or love wine, which is, or hopefully both. But um, it's not like, investors aren't chasing this the way that they chase like tech startups or mm -hmm. any other totally. kind of startup because it's not, nobody invests in a winery because they want to make a lot of money. They invest in a winery because they love wine and they probably love the person who's making that wine and steering that company. And so, um, I think that there, I, we, because our products are geared towards a younger audience, that makes it increasingly difficult. And this is what, because we talked about it on the phone, so I know that yeah, this is like part better. of the theme here, which is, um, you know, as our target market, as our target market's wealth becomes greater, there may be more private money interest in in what we do, but. Traditionally speaking, like a lot of the wealth has been tied up with like baby boomers who are more, this is a gross overgeneralization by the way, but I'm just gonna put it out there. That is a generation that is not after Petnat of Carignan. They're after like sexy wines from Napa and those are the wineries they wanna invest in because that's what they like to drink and that's what their friends like to drink and that's what they wanna show off. And again, I realize that that's an overgeneralization, but it's largely... You're backed up by trend, don't worry. Huh? You're backed up by trend. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it will be really interesting to see what happens in terms of, like, interest in investment in these types of businesses um, because it's also it's very helpful to have investors who have business experience that can help guide you through challenging business problems. You're not bringing them on for their wine expertise. That's what, that's what we're for. You're bringing them on because you want the help solving complex business problems that they've probably experienced in other industries. Um, and so it will be very interesting to see what happens when our target market has more money to potentially look at this type of passion investment. Thank you for that. So are there any questions from the audience? Yeah, please. Are you a grower? We do not grow our own grapes, technically speaking. So, have you worked with the USA in terms of USA in terms of microloans, and where are your biggest expenses today? 
I, I have not, but I'm going to investigate that now. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, I will definitely investigate that. Um, yes, I do sink quite a bit of the money in the viticulture and the farming, um, whether it's it's you know putting the bird nets on or pruning or you know it's 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 a lot of work. You either pay for the grapes or you pay for the farming. There's no way around it. If you want to, I mean, if you want to make good wine, the 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 grapes have to be good. I mean, it's, it's really and the California and, and and the point of this panel honestly is the fact that like. In California, it's super hard to be doing this right now. And yeah. for the U.S. natural wine movement to continue, it has to become sustainable for these producers in California, right? It, it, it's different from France. It's different from Italy. It's different in a, in a lot of other places. Totally, yeah. So, yeah, I, I sink quite a, quite a lot into the viticulture, but also bottles and, and barrels and all, all the other, just the packaging itself is expensive. So, um, and it's all at the same time. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is helpful, but this year I spent $30,000 on grapes and I'm making a thousand cases. So that's, and I'm buying like not expensive grapes. So that's like and your a wines good portion. What was that? And your wines are dang. Oh, thanks, Chloe. <laughs> uh, so that's where a lot of the money's going, just grapes. And then uh, either paying per ton to crush that somewhere or paying for a facility is another big expense. Um, I mean, there's like thousands of hidden ones too, but those are the big ones. It's uh, pretty much spread out across everything that I have to buy. I guess you know, grapes probably are number one. When I farmed the fruit uh, before purchasing fruit, yeah, it was probably, uh, it's probably not quite as expensive as just buying grapes, depending on where you're getting them from. Um, but. I never factored in my own labor into that, so it probably does come out to about equal. Um, and then there's rent, whether it's uh, the space, the winery space. I my, The winery I use is too small for me to keep all my case goods at, so I have to rent a warehouse down in Sonoma and truck all my uh, bottled wines there, and then I have to pay a monthly fee of 400 bucks a month uh, just to keep my wines there, and then they charge me to send them out, um, put them together on a pallet, um, so, yeah, that, I, I, it's hard to nail down what's the most expensive, um, you know, everything in just glass grapes and everything. You're probably looking at, you know, 75 to 85 bucks to produce a case of wine. And then we have to sell them, you know, for 100, you know, 120 to 150, you know, to a distributor. It'd be nice to sell directly to consumer and you're talking 300 bucks a case and then your margins are really going up. But if you're only making 30 bucks on a, on a case of wine, and sometimes it's those, those wines sit in the warehouse for two years, and I'm paying 400 bucks a month for, for two years, that makes those wines more and more expensive, yet I can't, you know, there, you can't pass that on to the consumer. Um, so, yeah. This whole movement is based on this kind of inexpensive young people drinking wine in, in a lot of ways, but there's, there's price, it's a price ceiling in a lot of ways. There is. With natural wine, a lot of people don't want to pay a, a, a premium, you know, they don't, they don't consider them trophy wines. They're not going to want to pay 60 bucks at a, at a wine shop for natural. They're looking for $20 bottles of wine. So that, you know, when you're only making 500 to 1,000 cases of wine, that's, you know, it makes things tough.
$300, I think. What is it? Three, not 300000 yeah. <laughs> that'd be it. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> No, th thank you for your question. Honestly, I was going to ask a similar question, right? Like, like, uh, like, what are some regulations that would help you, or what are some things that, like, what, like what can we do in the audience, or, who, or who's listening? Like, what, what is a call to action? Is it buying more direct to consumer if that's applicable? What were, are some regulations that could help you or lessen the burden on your small businesses? And is that answer? Is that is that okay? Well, I don't think there's one, there's not one answer. It's like a multi-layered approach towards, yeah, so I mean, we're, where we're starting is in this room and the fact that people are interested enough to come listen to us talk about this and are asking questions and are engaged and involved and um, the, yeah, 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 totally. So I think, um, yeah, so being like these, I mean, look, natural wine, like the proliferation of natural wine just over the last five years is insane. Like, I would actually like to see this answer. How many people in here didn't drink natural wine five years ago? Could you raise your hand? Like, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, it is growing. There's tons of good shops in Manhattan that, that sell natural wine, but I hear your point, which is like, yeah, you go into a shop, you ask for natural wine, like a traditional shop, and they like, well, especially if you're like someone like us, because we're younger, they just look at you like you're a stupid hipster that doesn't know anything about wine. And then, you know, you're like, you're a stuffy old guy that doesn't know anything about real wine. So fuck you. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think like the, the, the issue is, so linking this to something that people know a lot about, which is food. Um, David Chang wrote an article a while ago. I don't remember what publication it was in. I don't think it was Lucky Peach, but it's basically like people need to get comfortable paying way more money for food or restaurants aren't going to make it or they're not going to be making the food that you want to eat because the food that you want to eat can't cost what you want to pay for it. So like there is this very difficult catch-22, which is like if we wanted to make money, it's like, oh, you're not making enough money? Just charge double for your wine. It's like, well, we can't do that because no one's going to buy a $60 bottle of Carignan Petnat from Mendocino. Um, and frankly, even if they would, I don't want it to cost that much because it, it, I want people to be able to, I want people, my peer set, to be able to afford to buy the wine. So um, it is challenging. I think, like, awareness in general, like, I don't think any legislation is going to come through. I don't think the government's all of a sudden going to start subsidizing small wineries, which... Even, like, local, even, even like, local state-by-state state regulations, though? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to consider what would actually be realistic and helpful, mm -hmm. you know? Like, it'd be great if the state regulated that everybody has to drink Natty Juice, but <laughs> I don't really foresee that happening. So I'm not sure what, like, practically speaking, is gonna help because, like, a direct subsidy is not really in the cards, right? Yeah, I mean, this isn't the place to talk about taxes and all that, but anyway, <laughs> does anyone else have a thought on that? Or any other ways that I think, that you yeah, think, oh, is there another question? Oh. 
we can all self-distribute in California, but I know that Megan and I don't. Do you guys self-distribute? No. Yeah, so I, too I much work. Do. Yeah, you I do? Yeah, I currently do. You need the reach of a distributor. Yeah. You need the reach. You need to get into accounts that you don't know, and the only way to do that is with, like, a broader sales base. So the, the question is, is the American wine market the only wine market for a natural wine? And um, I'm curious. In we America. export wine. I, I s sent some to London, and I used to sell in Montreal. Um, but I think it was more or less a novelty for them. Um, and I don't sell in Montreal anymore. And, you know, like London's bought, you know, five cases over the last two years. So it's not... You know, the majority of what we sell, I believe, is strictly here in the U.S., yeah. I've had a ton of interest from other, like, international markets, but I usually say no because even though those markets are there, uh, I'm only going to make, like, FOB freight on board wholesale pricing versus connecting with consumers that live in the same country as me who might join the mailing lists and might start buying directly from me, which is, like, my goal. I'll just add on to that, that exporting is awesome because it, it like grows your brand awareness and it's a lot of like um, credibility when your wines are sold in like Tokyo or Paris or, you know, insert great food city here. Uh, but you also have to wait a very long time to get paid because it takes a long time to get there. And then like if you're having trouble getting paid, chasing somebody down in another country is a lot harder than like calling your distributor and, you know, whatever, some state in America. So the, the question is, if you do get that capital, what's the first thing that you will get off? The first, the first person that will take something off your hands. I would just spend it on a vacation because I haven't had one of those. No. <laughs> this is what we mean by spreading out equity and getting more stakeholders involved in the natural wine movement. I would, I would pay someone to handle all the business part of it. I, I would love to just make wine and, and focus on that. Um, but currently, I you know do all of it. So, but yeah, paying someone to just do the finances would be amazing. Meg, you told me you hired your first uh, accountant. Yeah, I have an accountant and a bookkeeper because I think it's crucial. Especially has it been helpful? Uh, yeah, and like I don't know anything about that, and I can only learn so many things. You know, <laughs> like I'm busy. Um, I would hire someone to manage all direct to consumer. I think a great example in our industry of that is Martha Steuben. Like she and I went to college together, we were in a very similar, she was in a very similar place that I am now a couple of years ago, hired a DTC person, and now she's freaking killing it. So I think we can learn from that type of model. Uh, yeah, we, we actually have two employees um, and like, a, you know, consultants for like things like accounting and stuff. Um, but I would have to wholeheartedly agree with Megan that I'd probably, so I, I have like <clears throat> a full-time production person and a part-time general manager, but I would hire somebody to be devoted to direct consumer sales and marketing. 
So we have one time, for, time for one last question. So the question is, what what is your what was your first step in formulating your business plan when you did go to banks or when you're coming up with this business? That's a great question. I think a lot of people really don't know where to start. I, I looked at a few examples, um, and I kind of I had a great mentor that, I, and I kind of used his cost profile and used all like. Um, the expenditures that he was having and uh, to, to write a business plan and I forecasted it like way too many years into the future um, and uh, yeah uh, but there's so many hidden little costs that you just don't think of you can't just like quantify the barrels and the wine and the grapes and, um, and the, the corks and the labels and stuff like that there's so many little things just driving to the vineyards and stuff like that that, that add up um, but yeah it's a uh, it's it's humbling to see the, the numbers at the at the end of the business plan. <laughs> I I think I didn't really have a plan. I just kind of let the business grow organically or naturally, um, and I don't know if that was the best approach. Um, in hindsight, and I actually went to school. I have a minor in business, um, but I hire an accountant, and uh, I'm horrible at writing business plans. Um, so and I'm horrible at. at you know, keeping keeping the book, so it's hard to write a, a good business plan if you really don't know where your business stands and and you don't have confidence to say this is where it's going to be or where I want to be. You know, right now I just want it to pay for itself, and and you know, provide me with some pride and uh, maybe pay some bills. So uh, I didn't have a real business plan either. I kind of wrote something for Kickstarter, but it was more like theoretical, I'd say, less actually related to numbers because I didn't know what the costs were gonna be. And I think that's why I didn't write it originally, because uh, I feel like I have a good sense of what I do and don't know, which is part of why I hired these other numbers people. And now that I have that data from them, it's something I'm just starting to write now as I look for investors. Um, I wrote a pretty elaborate business plan and... That you're going to share with all of us, right? <laughs> um, well, so the funny thing about it is, like, I actually went to school for, for business and studied business and wrote an elaborate business plan. And what it did for me was it helped me raise capital because it looked serious, which was invaluable. However, um, I'm... Like, then I rewrote it a year in to true up to actual, and then I rewrote it another year in to true up to actual, which is right now, we've been in business for about two years, um, and it's never been correct, like not even moderately. So I think it doesn't really matter, because at the end of the day, like m most startups are about like pivoting and being agile and like adapting. So um, having something on paper is helpful, and having an understanding of what's on that paper is helpful, but being a smart decision maker um, and doing what's best for your business and protecting yourself and your business and trying to grow um, is what's ultimately super important. So having a, you know, being able to pencil it all out perfectly is, I think, less important than being a great operator. 
Well, guys, I think we're actually over time, unfortunately. But if you have any other questions, feel free to grab any of the panelists. They all have amazing wise. Go, go sample them if you haven't yet. Thank you all for hanging in there with us. Um, and if we leave you with anything, please uh, buy direct when you can. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.